listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the CRX Podcast, where cannabis and pharmacy merge, unveiling medical wonders and the world of cannabis legalization. Explore the cutting edge, empower your knowledge, and embrace the future of medicine. Uh, Hello, everybody. This is Joseph Friedman, pharmacist with the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and we're doing a special podcast today uh, with some uh, experts. One is a PharmD, the other, Lisa, uh, is very involved in the psychedelic industry as well as the cannabis industry. Um, I'm very involved in the cannabis industry as well as uh, dipping my toe in the psychedelic industry right now. Uh, But at the same time, um, I just want to go ahead and pass the uh, baton over to uh, Regina. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, Joseph. Uh, Thanks for having me today. I'm Dr. Regina Moore. I'm a pharmacist uh, based out on the Oregon coast. Uh, I'm not practicing much these days, mostly retired from uh, my community pharmacy practice, but I'm a co-founder of the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association and sit on the board of directors and um, am involved in a lot of legislative and advocacy efforts um, locally here in Oregon and uh, and then more broadly uh, around the U.S., So excited to see where we go today. Thank you. And uh, Lisa, go ahead. Hi, I'm Lisa Solomon, and I've been involved in the cannabis education and advocacy space since 2017. In the last couple of years, I've been diving more into the psychedelic space um, in terms of learning myself and involved in education and advocacy work in the community. I'm the Community Engagement Director of the Illinois Psychedelic Society and co-chair of the Clinical Education Council for the Society, and I'm in the process of forming the Illinois chapter of the Psychedelic Medicine Association, which will be the first state chapter, and we are very excited to be a part of that. Great. And and I know, uh, Regina, and you were probably there, there was recently um, a meeting in Denver um, of the uh, Pharmacist Psychedelic Association. I think they had a booth there. And um, and one thing that I thought was very interesting was something that I read on how um, a couple of board members of the, of the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association met with two officials from uh, SAMHSA, which is uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Now, my experience with SAMHSA from the cannabis industry is a lot of misinformation comes out <laughs> from this organization as well as other government organizations. So what is your experience with SAMHSA and the meeting uh, in Denver? Yeah, we um, we were really excited. There's obviously uh, some things starting to go on behind the scenes as the the federal government you know recognizes the movement being made with uh, more state based uh, legalization and, and other mechanisms for access to psychedelics, and they're paying attention. Um, so uh, the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association was invited um, to come in and meet with some of these partners, and we had some follow up meet, meet excuse me follow up meetings with them. Uh, um, unfortunately, I uh, I got uh, sick at the conference. So we're talking about the MAP Psychedelic Science Conference that uh, Lisa was at also, this like 12,000 person uh, conference um, covering the whole psychedelic ecosystem, really, uh, that was in Denver uh, in June uh, 2023. And um, so I didn't actually get to attend the meeting directly itself, but um, but I did get to talk to some of those uh, those government partners um, a little bit before this private meeting. 
And it sounds like, you know, they're wanting evidence-based uh, information. They're wanting um, other stakeholders who uh, come from trustworthy sources, and um, they're trying to to make policies that make sense, or at least start to outline uh, outline the the foundations of doing that. So I appreciate that they showed up there and that they were uh, looking for, for organizations like mine um, to try to get some of that information. Beyond that, I really can't say. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping the things that start to come out of this are moving in a, in a more positive direction than some of the history has been with cannabis. Great. And then Lisa, you know, when we talk about psychedelics, can you sort of get into what kind of um, molecules are involved and, you know, where there's harm reduction and where there's opportunity for mental health uh, uh, issues and so forth. Um, sure. So I'll go, go over and I'll name some of the commonly used psychedelics. Um, LSD, psilocybin, which is the hallucinogenic ingredient in magic mushrooms, MDMA, DMT, which is found in ayahuasca, ibogaine, um, there's 5-MeO-DMT, which is found in the Bufo toad. There's Combo, which comes from an Amazonian frog. Those are some of the ones that are used. Ketamine is the only one that is currently federally legal in the U.S. Psilocybin has been legalized in Oregon, and we can look to Regina to talk a little bit more about that, and in Colorado. And there are a number of states that have bills that they are working on hoping to pass. In Illinois, we have HB1, which is also referred to as the Illinois Cure Act, which will decriminalize psilocybin and legalize it for medicinal and research purposes. So that is something that we are working on now, and that's why the Illinois Psychedelic Society is involved in so many education efforts. We know that education is the key to legalization. There is a considerable amount of science and research on psychedelic medicines, though we still need a lot more. There have been a lot of early studies done to show promise in treating so many types of conditions. Great. And, and then, so let me ask you this question. Are we going to have like mushroom stores on every corner, uh, on, on, you know, <laughs> in popular areas, Regina, or what, what's happening in Oregon and how is this being rolled out? Right. So um, that is, well, ironically, we did have a mushroom store for a few months, but that was not at all legal. So um, the the model here in Oregon currently is uh, what, what I like to call an adult supervised use model. Um, so there are regulated access points. You have uh, licensed facilitators who have gone through a training program and become licensed. You have licensed service centers, which um, are the, the places where people can take psilocybin with the facilitator. You have licensed growers, you have licensed laboratories, somewhat like you would with the cannabis ecosystem where they're um, checking for the, the strength and, and verifying that it's the right you know, product. Um, and those all come together for what we call Oregon psilocybin services. Adults uh, are able to come and uh, use psilocybin here with uh, without a diagnosis. They don't need a, a medical indication to be able to do it. They can be somebody who's pursuing it for their, uh, you know, medical me potential medical benefits, but it's not considered a medical uh, treatment in any way. The facilitators um, are all under the same license, regardless of if they are somebody from the community who goes through through this training or if they are. 
uh, a therapist or a medical doctor. And um, it's, it's interesting compared to some of the other things going on in other states because, uh, or Colorado's pretty wide open as well. But um, a lot of them are approaching this more at first from the medical lens and then may roll out more of a recreational system. We've just moved forward with a single system here for now in Oregon. That being said, we don't know really how many people are going to be able to access it in the first few years because um, given all of those pieces, it's going to be pretty expensive. So most cases, probably about $3,000 per treatment um, versus like a, a you know retail shop where you can walk up and go purchase mushrooms and take them home. Um, but they did try it. Somebody ran for a few months with a place called the Shroom Shroom House, Shroom Shop, Shroom House in, uh, in Portland before they got shut down. So I expect we'll see some more things like that going on. And um, we'll see if that pushes the pushes the envelope at all and 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 moves towards having those access points, but not currently. Now, Regina, you mentioned that um, you know ketamine is out there and it's 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 legal um, from federal government standards. But how does um and maybe Lisa, you want to chime in here too? Is you know ketamine, you know, how does that differentiate from psychedelics? Um, and you know we're what, what kind of ketamine is used and what kind of clinics are, are using it? Uh, you know, how is, what is the route of administration? I'll just jump in quickly to say that ketamine is thought of as being a psychedelic medicine by some and others say it is not. It is technically a disassociative anesthetic and it is administered in different forms. There is IV, IM, there are lozenges and there's a nasal, nasal spray, Spravato. And it is found in all different types of settings. There are people that have opened up clinics for ketamine where they focus on that. And there are a lot of people that believe that it's most effective when it is combined with therapies. They call it KAT, ketamine assisted therapy. And some large hospitals even have clinics, but they use Spravato, the nasal spray, as far as I understand. And so, so what are we using this for? What type of conditions? Well, the approved use, the approved off-label use is limited. And Regina, chime in if I'm missing some here, but treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, and chronic pain disorders. Those are, yeah, the, the basic uh, things that ketamine is covering. Um, and uh, a lot of people say that they have significant improvements with it. Um, so it's got a, a robust uh, backing from, from community on that. Um, and uh, some people uh, do it with more of that in-depth therapy, like Lisa mentioned, the ketamine-assisted therapy. Um, there are also uh, uh, quite a few um, uh companies that have come up and, and really grown during the pandemic um, that are doing more at-home treatment systems. Those are typically with the lozenges where they mail them out to people um, and they have a check-in system with a nurse or something similar to, to follow up and, and hopefully, but not always have more of that therapy component where they can 
talk about things in process, um, how how that at-home treatment model uh, keeps going on remains to be seen as uh, uh, changes on, on how we're able to do mail order um, controlled substances and things like that uh, adjust coming out of the pandemic. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a very popular uh, treatment model. Uh, and we saw a lot of uh, providers actually at that uh, MAPS conference in Denver. I think there was a pretty good show of the the ketamine crowd um, because it doesn't fall under that classical psychedelic model like LSD or psilocybin where it's you know causing um, you know vivid hallucinations or changes in in that kind of perception um, a lot of people like Lisa said don't consider it to be a psychedelic but at these higher doses um, when people uh, you know come back to their baseline um, many of them do compare it um, to the the level of experience that they have with the traditional psychedelics they're just not like awake <laughs> they're not experiencing it in the same capacity. Okay. Right. Yeah, and the at-home model is oh, somewhat controversial. There are people that feel it is phenomenal because it gives access to a lot of people that don't live in an area where they can access IV or IM ketamine. And it is also much lower in cost. So some of the safeguards that are used by the better at-home ketamine companies include a blood pressure cuff, having someone monitor you while you are on it, or making sure you have someone at home that can call 911 if you have an issue. Because with ketamine, it can elevate your blood pressure. So people that have health issues that can be aggravated by that need to be very careful. Glaucoma, high blood pressure, and that's where you really need the advice of a medical professional to make sure that you are a candidate for that. Great. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I don't know if, Regina, you have this in your area, but Lisa and I are members of, of what we call Chicago Med Psychedelics. And it's a group of healthcare professionals, you know, physicians, uh, PhDs, advanced degree nurses. I'm the pharmacist on the, in the group. And what we do is we meet once a month <clears throat> at this very <clears throat> eclectic um, coffee house. <laughs> it's actually owned by uh, Billy Corgan. Um, you know the uh, uh, you know from the Smashing Pumpkins, the fun yeah. <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins. So um, a freelance writer out of um, New Zealand, Emma Emma Stone. Is it Emma Stone? Yeah, Emma Stone uh, wrote an article, and it was picked up by High Times Magazine about this group and what we do and how we exchange information and information about meetings and events and things like that. Is there anything like that going on in Oregon? Um, there are various groups. Um, there's like the Portland Psychedelic Society and they have, uh, I think it's monthly, like a healthcare <laughs> provider, uh, meetup that, um, was occurring on Zoom last I had checked, um, which is, is nice because that allows more people throughout the state like me, who's about three hours from Portland, um, to attend sometimes. But, um, it's, uh, it's under the umbrella of Portland Psychedelic Society. And I think there's, there's quite a few little groups starting to pop up now that our uh, psilocybin program comes on board, um, but uh, they still seem to be fairly uh, fairly little small uh, niches um, rather than a, a larger organization. So we'll, we'll see if something like that develops. 
Okay, and, and how, how is it dosed? I know we, we talk about hero doses, we talk about micro dosing. You know, if you're a pharmacist in the audience and you wonder, okay, you know, I'm used to being in the pharmacy and having all of these pharmaceuticals in, you know, one milligram, five milligram, 10 milligram, half a milligram. How is, how is psilocybin dosed? So that's that somewhat complicated question, because if we're talking about how um, it's referred to uh, more more widely, like in the in the common use culture versus how they're talking about it in clinical trials or how the Oregon system is looking at it, um, it's different. Uh, traditionally, it's been people taking raw mushrooms where it's only a, a percentage of the mushroom that has any active component. And then we're usually referring to um, grams or sometimes milligrams if people are microdosing. Um, and uh, then in the clinical trials, or now that we're testing for potency and looking at standardized dosing, then it's typically more in the in the lower milligram doses. So I think that's important to, to be aware of if you're going to have any conversations with people and knowing which audience you're speaking to. Uh, so the, the, in the, the traditional dosing, we're usually talking uh, for a, 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 more active trip, so to speak, where people are experiencing um, things and having some of those perceptual alterations. You're, you know, one gram plus, probably more like two grams plus. That being said, potency varies quite a bit. So you don't really know what you're getting unless you're testing. Um, and then uh, for the uh, the the more clinical model, they're looking at things more like 25 milligrams or so for the higher doses. Um, I honestly would have to look up what that translates to for a microdose in the milligram uh, side because that hasn't really been looked at that much, though the Oregon system is allowing for it. But uh, if we're talking about um, somebody taking raw mushrooms and doing microdosing, um, then it's it's typically uh, like under a half gram um, and then it's down significantly from there, you know, down to maybe like 100 milligrams or something like that. Okay. And, you know, and, and one of the things that always comes up, and I saw this coming up quite a bit, you know, in the cannabis industry is contraindications. So in other words, like if someone has, uh, uh, if someone has like the genetic background of having psychosis in their family, cannabis might not be the best option for them. Um, what kind of contraindications or drug interactions can we expect with uh, psilocybin? This is another one where the research is evolving quite a bit. Um, I, I won't speak firmly to many of these things, um, but uh, at least in this Oregon system, the only uh, direct contraindication is, I, I think it might only be in the last month, but like basically recent use of lithium. Um, and uh, that's, that's more to do with the types of reasons that lithium is used for, you know, uh, schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorders or you know things that um that that there's uh, a concern that um a psychedelic experience might um precipitate another episode um so those people are are supposed to speak to their healthcare providers 
on a more subtle level, there have been a lot of questions about how other uh, psychoactive medications and you know, th- uh, or medications for depression can affect the experience. Um, there was a new study that came out, I think, just last week um, as part of the COMPASS uh, uh, d- dr- uh, psilocybin drug development trials that was looking at the effects of SSRIs on dosing. Um, I haven't delved into that one too deep, but a lot of the information keeps pointing to that um, SSRIs may not really impact the experience. And we used to think um, that because of that interplay with uh, serotonin, um, that it would blunt the experience um, or either or people would need to wean off of antidepressants or that maybe they would need higher doses. So a lot of the a lot of the things that we thought based on just kind of, you know, pharmacology information, and they may not fully hold up. But some of that, I think, also speaks to the fact that we may not fully understand yet all of the things that are happening when someone is having a psychedelic experience, and how that fully plays into the clinical benefits that we see as far as um, helping with depression and those types of things. You know, it's interesting, within our group, Chicago Med Psychedelics, we do have one physician, um, Carolina Mikos, and uh, she, she left her primary practice. And what she does specifically now is she goes to a patient's home where they they source the product and she is with them holding their hand and being uh, support for their experience with psychedelics. Uh, you know, that's sort of a, a sort of a pre-legalization idea that this one doctor has to, to be there for patients that are going through this type of therapy. And, and, and the idea is, is, is if you're a pharmacist out there, you know, and you've got patients that um, are on chemotherapy, they've got, um, you know, end stage, you know, uh, cancer um, prognosis, things like that. One of the things that I've learned is that sometimes a, a dose of psilocybin can really change their thought process and make them more accepting of what's going on in their life. I mean, have you had any experiences with that, Lisa or, or Regina? Go ahead, Lisa. Well, I've heard a number of people talk about the benefits of psychedelics for palliative care. Um, that people who are nearing the end of their life after a psychedelic experience exhibit much lower anxiety and they tend to be more at peace with with what is coming. And some people believe that that is because they are getting into this space of like universal love. They feel like there is more, that they're not just meeting this like horrible end. Um, Sue Sicily, who was a cannabis researcher for many years, has done some research on psilocybin for end of life and is a big advocate for that. And and how does that differ from, say, ecstasy, MDMA, you know, where they they coin that the love drug and that gives everyone sort of a great, you know, outlook as far as being loved and 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 and, and loving everybody else? I haven't looked at research on that, but I will say that psilocybin and even ketamine, if it's used for this, can be a gentler experience. Interesting. Regina, what what do you think? 
Well, I'm not aware specifically of any research looking at MDMA in that kind of palliative care realm, so I can't speak to it from that level. Um, but there is is a pretty robust body of research uh, on, on psilocybin. Um, Dr. Roland Griffiths is another one, if people are looking for somebody to, to read up on or find some of his papers, who's um, talked about this a lot. I think one of the benefits of psilocybin versus MDMA um, potentially for end-of-life care is that psilocybin is generally considered to be pretty safe, and most people seem to be able to tolerate it fairly well, physiologically at least, especially with the proper supports around. Um, MDMA, um, you know, can increase blood pressure more and um, can have, you know, people need to make sure that they're staying well hydrated and potential for electrolyte issues. Um, you know, usually we consider that more in like a like a, a rave situation where people are also exerting a lot of energy and sweating and whatnot. But um, but somebody who's uh, more uh, more. Uh, labile or, you know, body isn't functioning as well or something closer to end of life, um, there may be more considerations in, in how something like MDMA affects them and if it's safe to use at all. Um, whereas psilocybin, most of them seem to be able to do it. So, uh, and then I think MDMA, we're talking more about that, um, especially as as it potentially comes onto the market as a prescription, as a uh, psychotherapeutic aid. So a, a lot of people will talk about MDMA being something that um, opens people up to be able to um, like move past, you know, weeks or months of the, the therapy process to feel comfortable exploring some of those deeper things, um, whereas some people talk about psilocybin as the experience in and of itself can be therapeutic and help them maybe come to terms with things, especially if they are going into the experience with a goal of, you know, saying I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with the end of life or, uh, or family issues or things like that. If they go into it with a goal that they may be able to come out of just one session feeling more relief, whereas the MDMA process seems to be more of an ongoing therapeutic effort over multiple sessions that may not be, uh, may not lend itself as well to someone who's in a hospice situation or something like that. Well, that's very interesting to know. And, and what do we know about, you know, the idea of using psilocybin for um, smoking sensation, uh, getting off of alcohol, uh, getting off of substances, uh, for PTSD, things like that. Uh, Lisa or, or, or Regina, wherever you feel like you want to chime in, go ahead. Well, there has been a lot of research coming out about the use of psychedelics to end addiction. And what's very interesting is unlike 12-step programs where you are never to touch the substance, they are finding at these treatment centers that after undergoing successful psychedelic therapies, for the addictions that it changes someone's relationship with with the substance they have people that were alcoholics and they find that after this they can have an occasional drink they don't feel a compulsion to continue drinking to have the next one and the next one what they are also finding is that for some people they're seeing this benefit can last up to two years some people they're finding need a tune-up another treatment after six months so this is an area where they are trying to focus a lot of research it just, it's life-changing for people. 
to be able to feel free of that and not feel like they're a slave to that addiction, that they're always fighting it, but to allow people to come out on the other side of it. And this is with a number of different substances, whether it's ketamine, psilocybin, um, ibogaine, and there, a lot of people do leave the country to do it because some of these substances and some of the treatments are not legal in the U.S. And that's something that's very important to think about harm reduction in terms of going to these treatment centers. You need to make sure that they have medical staff that is going to make sure the dose you're getting is appropriate for you, that you're not having an irregular heartbeat when you're going to do these. And it will be nice when these are legalized in the U.S. and they become more affordable and therefore more available to greater numbers of people. And then you said something very important, Lisa, and that is the idea that you know you take you know a Joe Average on the street who's got depression or is end of life or has PTSD or some kind of substance abuse issue. You just don't want them going to anyone that 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 can produce magic mushrooms or psilocybin or ketamine and to say, hey, treat me. You really want to have a knowledgeable healthcare professional uh, that's behind all that. Well, I I think it's important when we're talking about these things too, to kind of uh, be aware of the the various reasons that people use these substances and who the proper support team would be to help them meet their goals. Um, because of the the way that the language has evolved over the last decade or so, especially after um, Michael Polan's book, How to Change Your Mind, that a lot of people read, um, we've really come to talk about this in terms of, you know, saying psychedelics as medicine, which they definitely can be, and then looking at the, you know, the, the potential clinical outcomes that people can have. Um, if somebody has a significant, um, you know, clinical d- disease level, you know, treatment resistant depression, um, uh, significant PTSD, where they should already be getting the support of a, of a therapy team and things like that, then yes, those people likely should be uh, pursuing that avenue. But a lot of people report benefits without those things. Um, there's lots of people who are self-treating and uh, and then, you know, I'm, this is kind of my little soapbox that I get on a lot that I like to bring up as a healthcare professional is also I think there's value in in uh, in recreation in some ways. If you can find a, a safe way to do it, if you know that your body is safe to do it, if you're doing it with kind of those proper guardrails, um, finding time for rest and relaxation and reconnection and novel experiences can can probably help support our mental health. So there's a which is one of the reasons I'm excited about our organ system, because it doesn't it doesn't say you have to use this for a certain reason. Um, so I think it's it's important knowing what your goals are, um, knowing what the general health of an individual is, and then if they they have concerns, um, making sure they follow up with a healthcare provider. Um, but there there are potential benefits that people can receive outside of a traditional healthcare setting, um, and we we just need to continue to dial things in and make sure that the right clients or the right patients are going um, to the right places to receive services. And I think that's important to point out if we want this to be something that's accessible, because if everything's going to be 
um, under a psychedelic assisted therapy model, for example, that means you have clinician time as well as, uh, you know, drug costs. And um, that's going to make treatments very expensive. Um, I would expect when these do become prescription because MDMA and psilocybin are both likely to to hit the market by the end of the decade. Uh, you know, they're they're both going to be things right now that are because of the time involved are going to require prior authorizations, um, probably people who are going to have to demonstrate that they failed uh, multiple, you know, cheaper, quicker type of options. Um, so just keeping in mind uh, who who the target is and what the uh, appropriate guardrails are for them. Regina, you raised an excellent point with the recreational part of it. So we know a lot of people consume alcohol, which we know has a lot of negative effects on the body. And some of these psychedelic substances when used in the appropriate dose, if you know you're getting a clean and safe product, can really help, you know, be a mood elevator, help give you energy. And there are a lot of people, especially people in their 20s that have stopped drinking and take like a, a mini dose of psilocybin when they go out and they feel much better. They have no hangover the next day. They feel more in control of themselves than if they've overindulged indulged in alcohol. So that is a great point. And as these programs in the states move forward, that is something that we'd like to see them allow for. And, you know, I, I totally agree with both of you. I think, you know, when I'm talking about the cannabis industry, I'm looking at, okay, if you're a patient, you really want to talk to a healthcare professional who has in-depth knowledge of drug interactions and modes of therapy and routes of administration and dosing and all that. Now, if you just want to walk into, into a dispensary and get the highest THC product just for recreational use, well, there's that, especially if you're not a patient, you don't need to talk to that healthcare professional. And I'm, it sounds like the same thing is true with psilocybin and ketamine and things like that, but psilocybin and ketamine, you're not going to walk into a store and talk to someone who's undereducated and get that product. I would say uh, that uh, what I described before applies mostly to psilocybin and potentially to to something like LSD. Um, there's a there's a great chart out um, from Professor uh, David Nutt out of the UK, um, and we've seen this replicated multiple times that looks at uh, the potential harms of various substances, um, you know, from alcohol to methamphetamine, psilocybin, uh, cannabis, etc. And, and it looks at the potential harms to the user and um, also the potential harm to others, which is an interesting element to add in. And we find that those the classical psychedelics, LSD, uh, psilocybin, are very, very low on that uh, that risk scale compared to some other things. Um, so maybe just, you know, use that as a guide uh, if 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 someone's trying to kind of assess um, uh, where where it may be safer for people to um, look into things on their own. Ketamine and in particular, ibogaine, um, I think are two uh, that uh, I would I would uh, say probably need some input from a healthcare provider because of some of the safety considerations. Excellent points. And, you know, I, I think we can go ahead and looks like we're running a little short of time here, but I just wanted to uh, see if you have any you know, final thoughts or how people can get a hold of you. Um, so, Lisa, why don't you go first? Well, I do want to add in that while we've talked a lot about the use of psychedelics for medicines and psychedelic assisted therapies, it's important to recognize, respect and protect the indigenous and ceremonial use of these substances. Many of these have been used for thousands of years and continue to be used in ceremony. 
Um, if someone wants to reach me, they can reach me at lisa at illinoispsychedelicsociety.org. Great. Regina. Let's see. Final thoughts. Um, I think just uh, as psychedelics should help to do in opening our minds a little bit, um, keep an open mind as uh, this continues to roll out. Um, we have a lot of uh, misinformation built up over the last 50, 60 years with the drug war, um, a lot of rethinking to do. And um, I hope that we just consider to look at things, these things under a lens of empowering individuals to have the most uh, you know, benefit in their lives that they can and to be able to do that safely. Um, and that can look different ways. Uh, you can find me at uh, reginamore.me is uh, my I don't know, website, I guess, short one. And also uh, farms, P-H-A-R-M-S, connect at gmail.com. Excellent. And, you know, I think, Regina, to your point, uh, the misinformation, I think if we can get the federal government out of the way and their misinformation machine, you know, I, I, I mean, I've experienced that with cannabis. Hopefully we're not going to experience this, the same thing. I know back in the day, Timothy Leary, you know, sort of, uh, you know, went out there on a limb and I think gave, you know, psychedelics a bad name back in the day. And I think that uh, catalyzed the whole, you know, anti, the whole government anti-psychedelic revolution that brings us to today where now they're looking at this as a benefit. And, you know, and, and I don't think we want to minimize the harm, uh, but we also want to understand where people can really get a lot of good use out of this and it can really help a lot of people with mental disorders and so forth. So with all that said, um, this is Joseph Friedman with the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Uh, thank you for listening and, uh, and thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Regina. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you.